Section 6 of In the Fourth Year, Anticipations of a World Peace by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, recorded by John Sherman. Section 6, Chapter 5b, Getting the League Idea Clear in Relation to Imperialism. This letter was presently followed up by an article in the Daily News entitled, A Reasonable Man's Peace. This article provoked a considerable controversy in the imperialist press, and it was reprinted as a pamphlet by a free trade organization which distributed over 200,000 copies. It is particularly interesting to note, in view of what follows it, that it was attacked with great virulence in the evening news, the little fierce mud-throwing brother of the Daily Mail. The international situation at the present time is beyond question the most wonderful that the world has ever seen. There is not a country in the world in which the great majority of sensible people are not passionately desirous of peace, of an enduring peace, and the war goes on. The conditions of peace can now be stated in general terms that are as acceptable to a reasonable man in Berlin as they are to a reasonable man in Paris or London or Petrograd or Constantinople. There are to be no conquests, no dominion of recalcitrant populations, no bitter insistence upon vindictive penalties, and there must be something in the nature of a worldwide league of nations to keep the peace secure in future to make the world safe for democracy and maintain international justice. To that the general mind of the world has come today. Why then does the waste and killing go on? Why is not the peace conference sitting now? Manifestly because a small minority of people in positions of particular advantage, in positions of trust and authority, and particularly the German reactionaries, prevent or delay its assembling. The answer which seems to suffice in all the Allied countries is that the German imperial government, that the German imperial government alone, stands in the way that its tradition is incurably a tradition of conquest and aggression, that until German militarism is overthrown, etc. Few people in the Allied countries will dispute that is broadly true, but is it the whole and complete truth? Is there nothing more to be done on our side? Let us put a question that goes to the very heart of the problem. Why does the great mass of German people still cling to its incurably belligerent government? The answer to that question is not overwhelmingly difficult. The German people sticks to its militarist imperialism as Metzbus stuck to his horse, because it is bound to it and the wolves pursue. 
the attentive student of the home and foreign propaganda literature of the German government will realize that the case made by German imperialism, the main argument by which it sticks to power, is this that the Allied governments are also imperialist, that they also aim at conquest and aggression, that for Germany the choice is world empire or downfall and utter ruin. This is the argument that holds the German people stiffly united. For most men in the countries it would be a convincing argument, strong enough to override considerations of right and wrong. I find that I myself am of this way of thinking, that whether England has done right or wrong in the past, and I have sometimes criticized my country very bitterly, I will not endure the prospect of seeing her at the foot of some victorious foreign nation. Neither will any German who matters. Very few people would respect a German who did. But the case for the Allies is that this great argument by which and by which alone the German imperial government keeps its grip upon the German people at the present time and keeps them facing their enemies is untrue. The Allies declare that they do not want to destroy the German people. They do not want to cripple the German people. They want merely to see certain gaping wounds inflicted by Germany repaired, and beyond that reasonable requirement they want nothing but to be assured, completely assured, absolutely assured, against any further aggression on the part of Germany. Is that true? Our leaders say so, and we believe them. We would not support them if we did not. And if it is true, have the statesmen of the Allies made it as transparently and convincingly clear to the German people as possible? That is one of the supreme questions of the present time. We cannot too earnestly examine it, because in the answer to it lies the reason why so many men were killed yesterday on the Eastern and Western Front, so many ships sunk, so much property destroyed, so much human energy wasted forever upon mere destruction, and why tomorrow and the next day and the day after, through many months yet perhaps, the same killing and destroying must still go on. In many respects this war has been an amazing display of human inadaptability. The military history of the war has still to be written, the grim story of machinery misunderstood, improvements resisted, antiquated methods persisted in, but the broad facts are already before the public mind. After three years of war, the air offensive, the only possible decisive blow, is still merely talked of. Not once nor twice only have the Western Allies had victory within their grasp and failed to grip it. The British cavalry generals wasted the great invention of the tanks as a careless child breaks a toy. At least equally remarkable is the dragging inadaptability of European statecraft. Everywhere the failure of ministers and statesmen to rise to the urgent, definite necessities of the present time is glaringly conspicuous. 
they seem to be incapable even of thinking how the war may be brought to an end. They seem incapable of that plain speaking to the world audience which alone can bring about a peace. They keep on with the tricks and feints of a departed age. Both on the side of the Allies and on the side of the Germans, the declarations of public policy remain childishly vague and disingenuous, childishly diplomatic. They chafer like happy imbeciles while civilization bleeds to death. It was perhaps to be expected. Few, if any, men of over 45 completely readjust themselves to changed conditions, however novel and challenging the changes may be, and nearly all the leading figures in these affairs are elderly men trained in a tradition of diplomatic ineffectiveness and now overworked and overstrained to a pitch of complete inelasticity. They go on as if it were still 1913. Could anything be more palpably shifty and unsatisfactory, more senile, more feebly artful than the recent utterances of the German Chancellor? And on our own side, let us examine the three leading points about this peace business in which this jaded statecraft is most apparent. Let the reader ask himself the following questions. Does he know what the Allies mean to do with the problem of Central Africa? It is the clear common sense of the African situation that while these precious regions of raw material remain divided up between a number of competitive European imperialisms, each resolutely set upon the exploitation of its possessions to its own advantage and the disadvantage of the others, there can be no permanent peace in the world. There can be permanent peace in the world only when tropical and subtropical Africa constitute a field free to the commercial enterprise of everyone, irrespective of nationality, when this is no longer an area of competition between nations. This is possible only under some supreme international control. It requires no special knowledge nor wisdom to see that. A schoolboy can see it. Anyone but a statesman absolutely flaccid with overstrain can see that. However difficult it may prove to work out in detail, such an international control must therefore be worked out. The manifest solution of the problem of the German colonies in Africa is neither to return them to her nor deprive her of them, but to give her a share in the pooled general control of mid-Africa. In that way she can be deprived of all power for political mischief in Africa without humiliation or economic injury. In that way too we can head off, and in no other way can we head off, the power for evil, the power of developing quarrels inherent in imperialisms other than German. But has the reader any assurance that this sane solution of the African problem has the support of the Allied governments? At best he has only a vague persuasion. And consider how the matter looks over there. The German government assures the German people that the Allies intend to cut off Germany from the African supply of raw material. 
that would mean the practical destruction of German economic life. It is something far more vital to the mass of Germans than any question of Belgium or Alsace-Lorraine. It is therefore one of the ideas most potent in nerving the overstrained German people to continue their fight. Why are we and why are the German people not given some definite assurance in this matter? Given reparation in Europe, is Germany to be allowed a fair share in the control and trade of a pooled and neutralized Central Africa? Sooner or later we must come to some arrangement. Why not state it plainly now? A second question is equally essential to any really permanent settlement, and it is one upon which these eloquent but unsatisfactory mouthpieces of ours turn their backs with an equal resolution, and that is the fate of the Ottoman Empire. What in plain English are we up to there? Whatever happens, that Humpty Dumpty cannot be put back as it was before the war. The idea of the German imperialist, the idea of our own little band of noisy but influential imperious vulgarians, is evidently a game of grab, a perilous cutting up of these areas into jostling protectorates and spheres of influence from which either the Germans or the Allies, according to the side you're on, are to be viciously shut out. On such a basis, this war is a war to the death. Neither Germany, France, Britain, Italy, nor Russia can live prosperously if its trade and enterprise is shut out from this cardinally important area. There is therefore no alternative if we are to have a satisfactory permanent pacification of the world but local self-development in these regions under honestly conceived international control of police and transit and trade. Let it be granted that there will be a difficult control to organize. Nonetheless, it has to be attempted. It has to be attempted because there is no other way of peace. But once that conception has been clearly formulated, a second great motive why Germany should continue fighting will have gone. The third great issue about which there is nothing but fog and uncertainty is the so-called war after the war. The idea of a permanent economic alliance to prevent the economic recuperation of Germany. Upon that idea, German imperialism, in its frantic effort to keep its tormented people fighting, naturally puts the utmost stress. The threat of war after the war robs the reasonable German of his last inducement to turn on his government and insist upon peace. Shut out from all trade, Unable to buy food, deprived of raw material, peace would be as bad for Germany as war. He will argue naturally enough and reasonably enough that he may as well die fighting as starve. This is a far more vital issue to him than the Belgian issue or Poland or Alsace-Lorraine. Our statesmen waste their breath and slight our intelligence when these foreground questions are thrust in front of the really fundamental matters. But as the mass of sensible people in every country concerned, in Germany, just as much as in France or Great Britain, know perfectly well, 
unimpeded trade is good for everyone except a few rich adventurers, and restricted trade destroys limitless wealth and welfare for mankind to make a few private fortunes or secure an advantage for some imperialist clique. We want an end to this economic strategy. We want an end to this plotting of governmental cliques against the general welfare. In such offences Germany has been the chief of sinners, but which among the belligerent nations can throw the first stone? Here again the way to the world's peace, the only way to enduring peace, lies through internationalism, through an international survey of commercial treaties, through an international control of interstate shipping and transport rates. Unless the Allied statesmen fail to understand the implications of their own general professions, they mean that. But why do they not say it plainly? Why do they not shout it so compactly and loudly that all Germany will hear and understand? Why do they justify imperialism to Germany? Why do they maintain a threatening ambiguity towards Germany on all these matters? By doing so, they leave Germany no choice but a war of desperation. They underline and endorse the claim of German imperialism that this is a war for bare existence. They unify the German people. They prolong the war. End of section 6.